Hello, I'm Doug Taylor, and I'm at the Cinémathèque Québécois in Montreal. It's my great privilege to speak with tonight's guest, Bruce Smith. Bruce is the showrunner of 19.2 on Bravo, as well as CTV's Cracked. He's written countless hours of TV drama, as well as movies of the week, like Prairie Giant, The Tommy Douglas Story, John A., Birth of a Country, and a host of theatrical plays and much, much television. Tonight, aside from talking about it, we'll be watching the pilot episode of Bravo's new hit series, 19.2. This series is an English-language adaptation of Radio Canada's popular series, Disney Deux. So uh, let's get straight down to welcoming Bruce Smith. everyone. Uh, welcome to Writers Talking Television. It's our first Montreal event. Uh, they usually take place in Toronto and Vancouver. Um, tonight we have Bruce Smith, showrunner uh, extraordinaire of uh, the hit Bravo series uh, 19.2, the English adaptation of the hit Quebec series 19.2. And interviewing him is our esteemed screenwriter, uh, Doug Taylor, also from Montreal. So um, just a quick word about the Writers Guild of Canada. We're a nonprofit organization, and we represent over 2,000 writers who are working in film, television, digital, radio, and, um, and all that fun stuff. And uh, so thank you again for being here. And we're going to start with a bit of discussion and then we're going to view the pilot episode, and then we will open it back up to the interview and questions from all of you. Thank you. All right, then. Can you hear me out, out there? So um, I don't know if some of you know me. My name is Doug Taylor, and I write mostly uh, long-form uh, feature films, so I'm as excited as any of you to uh, talk to Bruce and find out how one goes about putting together a superior, compelling, hour-long television drama in the Canadian TV landscape. So just to ease into that, uh, Bruce, um, maybe I can ask you, um, how does one put together a superior, compelling, hour-long television TV drama in the television landscape of Canada? And in the interest of concision, if you could frame your response in the form of a haiku, <laughs> that would help us really move things along. Uh, work, fail, work again, fail again, succeed. All right. Very well done. Everything's close. <laughs> it's not the right no number. No, I know. Um, well, it's interesting because I, I show ran two shows in Canada this year and was very happy with how both turned out, but they were very different shows. One was an episodic police show with a mystery of the week called Cracked for CBC that has a mental health aspect. So that was, uh, you know, you find what the show is, you find sort of what are the requirements for a successful episode, and you make sure you do them every week. Um, and the first requirement is a great plot. In 19.2, you have a very different show because this is a cop show without a plot of the week. There is no crime to be solved, which creates a very different challenge for the writers. And one of the things we really found, and hopefully you'll see tonight, is um, it's a big help to have a plot that you're going to reveal because you know, if you're going to find out who killed Johnny Mac, you might sit through that slightly boring scene because you're still going to find out who killed Johnny Mac. And if you're not in that kind of show... There's a, a requirement to suck the audience in and keep them engaged all the time. Mm -hmm. um, that that is the big challenge of 192. The big advantage of 192 this year was we had a really 
fantastic show that we were adapting. Um, Disneyfter is just a, a really, really fine piece of work and piece of television, and it was a great starting point for us to go, not how are we more clever, what are we going to do, but wow, this is good. How are we going to make something this good in English with different directors, different casts, different rhythms of speech, different emotional archetypes, different cultural expectations from the audience? Um, so... Well, apparently you figured that out so far. Well, so far, I just finished cut two of episode 10 today, and it's, uh, it's one good story, boy. Well, maybe this is a good place then to uh, back up a little and uh, maybe describe for the people here and in the podcast uh, the journey that brought you to, to writing television from whatever it is you expected of your life. Um, Again, in the spirit of brevity, if you could start maybe just from age nine. Uh, I always wrote. I wrote plays. I studied as an actor. I wrote a play while I was in theater school that I was interested in producing. Um, I didn't want to act in it. I produced it at the old Quebec Drama Festival. It won the Drama Festival. I got offered a job as a playwright in residence at Centaur. Uh, ran a theater company for a couple of years. Decided I was tired of struggling to keep my head above water. And I would like to go lie on the beach, so I moved to television. So did you always want to be a writer? Yeah, I didn't always exclusively want to be a writer, but I was always writing. It was, it was a necessity. I, as everyone knows here, that this was a very successful uh, French-language Radio Canada production. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the imported format from other places is becoming more and more popular, everything from The Office and uh, House of Cards coming from the UK and The Killing coming from the, the Danes. Um, a common approach is to replicate the first episode quite faithfully and then, uh, or perhaps even the first season quite faithfully and then divorce yourself and just take off and become a show unto your own, uh, unique unto itself. Uh, so I'm asking how how much will you be sticking with that first season, and um, can you talk about just the, the with regards to 192 the challenges and benefits of working from a pre-existing proven format? Sure. Um- 192 started because the uh, French producer Sphere Media, who had come onto the show for a second season, uh, pitched it to CBC to be adapted in English. And CBC approached me and put me together with them. And the original uh, idea was move the show to Toronto or Vancouver and set it somewhere. And I watched the French show and I was blown away by it. I thought its quality was just superb. Um, but it was clearly a show about francophone characters in a francophone culture, in a francophone city, Montreal. And if you moved it to Vancouver, the way people were behaving would not make sense. And the emotional journeys they were on were not. Uh, I, I've done a lot of cop shows. were not consistent with any other Canadian major city cop culture. So I pitched CBC, uh, and this has been an ongoing battle, but one that has worked, that we should do it the way the Americans would when they do Wallander or Tintin. Um, that we leave the characters francophones and we just do it all in English. Um, And we give a Canadian audience something they've never had, which is a chance to go into French Montreal and understand it without the barrier of subtitles and of language. So that was the start. 
And then in terms of letting the show grow and be different, I really invested in a very organic process. So I would write outlines based on the French show. I would look at them. I would see how they were working. I would start to make adjustments as they were needed. Then I would be into a script. It would have its own life. It would have its own voice. And really the show departs from the French show because of the difference in the cast. That's a big, big difference. And the characters become over time different characters. And one small change you've made stays with that character. And then the next day when they react to something, they're going to react differently because they react to something similar differently before. And so our show certainly does this over the course of the first season. Um, but we had committed in terms of the plot, because this is a show without crime of the week, but the plot is the story of the lives of the characters. Uh, season one had a very, very strong art story. And I was absolutely sure about key events that I was going to do in the last two episodes, even though I was pretty sure I would have to get to them in a different way. And that's what happened. So it's been an ongoing process of, you know, we shot the pilot, okay, learned some stuff about what was succeeding, what wasn't succeeding. And certainly one of the things we've really found is, is in the pilot you'll see tonight, there are some scenes that are really recreations from the French pilot. And by the end of season one, we don't do recreations anymore. We create our own version. Uh, just, just for everyone's sake, I think there's a, probably about as much confusion about the role of a showrunner as there are variations on what that set of responsibilities is. So, uh, you particularly having, on this show, having yeah. been a showrunner on more than one Canadian show, can you describe for those who aren't sure, like me, uh, what exactly, in your experience, is does a showrunner do first in the writing room process and then part two of that question is what is the showrunner's responsibility during production well the the showrunner started out as just a producer who was in charge of the show and they were the boss and they were hired by the studio and showrunners when i started in the business generally didn't write they were quite rare they were the Stephen botchkos and the stars of the world and over the course of my 20 plus year career um the writing showrunner has become the successful model, and this is taken from the Americans. And a lot of it is because when you're making television, it's a huge machine, it's hundreds of people, and they all, the machine runs on paper. And so if you are able to produce through the script and effectuate the changes yourself that you need to make things work, it's by far the most efficient way to get television made and to get our limited budgets to look wonderful on screen and to get performances and get the time for the right location because you can execute the trade-offs that are often painful. So I need a car explosion, so what am I going to give to earn that money? Well, I'm inside the script. I can decide what's important and I can often make the right choice or find ways to save money without losing something that's important. So my job as a showrunner on these last two shows is I'm in charge of the writing room. Uh, I am expected by the network when they give notes to execute and rewrite the scripts personally uh, once we're getting to a production-type stage. So I work, I, I try very hard to make sure that the first draft that goes to the network is as much as possible the voice of the person who wrote it, and then I face the reality of how much I may have to rewrite or push them to rewrite, and in the end I always do some rewriting. Um, on Cracked, it was funny because I was walking into a show that was in a lot of trouble, in a way, and so everybody from the cast to the producers to the network really wanted somebody to just take charge and be in charge, and that's a wonderful opportunity you don't get in Canada a lot where we don't empower showrunners. It's very case-by-case case how much power beyond rewriting the script you have. In 
1902, it's a very interesting model because in Quebec, they don't have showrunners. The directors do that job. And directors, the director of the French uh, version of this series directed the entire series, all 10 episodes, and he cut them all. And what you're watching on screen are director's cuts. So for 1902, I agreed to uh, work in a hybrid of that model. So we cut all these episodes, myself and the director, with the editor right through till broadcast. The director, there were only two directors for the whole series, um, and we work together. I deal with creative interaction with the network, and um, he deals largely with the creative interaction with the French producer, because that's the way the French producer is used to working. And it's a very unique model, um, and it can be difficult, but I have two fantastic directors who saw absolutely eye to eye on the series and how it should grow and where we were succeeding and where we were failing as we went. So it's been a wonderful experience, but it's, it's a bit of a nebulous. You have to constantly uh, earn your authority, assert your authority, and take your authority in 1902 in a way I didn't have to do on Cracked. Mm-hmm. Um, but the results are, I find, quite remarkable, so I'm happy to do it. Good to know. Um, this is this is sort of a general question, but because, as you said, this is not a procedural whodunit of the week, uh, this question is maybe a little bit more poignant. And the question is, other than the obvious frequency of high stakes and life-threatening jeopardy, what do you think is this the endless appeal of police dramas? Well, the stakes, the human drama. I mean, you know, I analogize 19.2, and you'll see some of this we should show them the show first, um, is a bit like ER, where the, the potential for life and death stakes to erupt through the door at any time is always there, and that's because you're working in an emergency room or you're in a patrol car on the police. But if you get through the next 10 minutes, you don't find out what happened. The guy, he goes off to the surgeons and you're back with your relationships in this environment. And one of the things cop shows give you is life and death stakes, is crime, is people in jeopardy, is guns, is, is stuff that is, is a very useful dramatic tool. And it's why we have so many cop shows on in English. Um, and so 192 tries to um, use those stakes very differently. And I think tonight's pilot is a good example of, of a, a different um, way of playing those cards. I think you could argue that, you know, hot dog skiing has life and death stakes as well, and there aren't a lot of shows about that. Do you think there's something about people's desire for law Oh, and yeah, order fascination or with crime, fascination with morality, fascination with sin, fascination with, with punishment, fascination with violence, fascination with sex. You can put all that in a cop show. Well, I think that's probably a good cue for us to watch a cop show right now. Um, if you please, can we uh, run the pilot episode of 19.2 and let the fascination begin? There you have it. That's 19.2. Number one. Number one. Well, I have to say, uh, I'm, I'm probably on behalf of many people here, that it's, it's extremely gratifying to see Montreal uh, portrayed as Montreal in a context 
that will be seen outside of Montreal, particularly the rest of Canada and, and wherever else this show eventually sells to. Um, so it's, it, it's exciting and it's new and it's familiar. It's and at the same time, as a Montrealer, there's a, a slight mental adjustment that has to go on. And that mental adjustment comes, I suppose, from um, it's a parallel universe in which everyone in Montreal speaks the same language. And weirdly, it's not French. Well, exactly. But in theory, really, it is. But French. really, it is. It and is. that was, uh, I can't imagine what you would have done differently. But I'm thinking about, for instance, when we watch a movie like Schindler's List, everyone's speaking English, but we know they're obviously speaking German. However, the chances of an English-speaking character coming into Schindler's List are fairly slim. Are fairly slim. So yeah, I'd so love to know the conversations that went into making this decision and the permutations of possible problems. How do you portray a bilingual city in a unilingual way? You disappear the English. <laughs> That's largely what we did, and we and we followed one of the reasons I chose more in Heights was, you know, I started with the. I'm a Montrealer. I love Montreal. I'm a writer. I've wanted to write about Montreal for 25 years. Language is an impossible barrier to cross. The English audience, I believe, will not follow subtitles, is not willing to go into French Montreal in French. So a show like this, it was apparent very early, well, if there's one word of French, then it needs to be 90% in French because that is the policeman's life. That is their existence. They work in French. You could be Anglophone. You don't go, you work in French work with some English. Um, so when we made this decision to do it in English, which was my push, because it had never been done in Canada, and I really thought it was worth a try and could work, uh, that created the problem of we're going to have to disappear the English, because by our model, the English would probably speak French, right? They would go to a house in Westmount, and the people would speak thickly joual French, mm -hmm. and they wouldn't be able to understand a word of it. Maybe we'll do that for a finale. Um, so what we did, therefore, was sort of fold... Uh, some of Anglophone culture and Eng English culture and my culture into the characters. Mm -hmm. So Morin Heights was chosen deliberately. Morin Heights, to many of the Francophones I work with, they say it's a fucking suburb. But I know people from Morin Heights who will not drive into Montreal. They are country people, and they're English. So that was a bit of a, a, a token homage to the people I was leaving out of the, um, the film. Um, and it's we, we've always been aware. It's an issue. This is a conversation I had to have with every director, every actor, every producer, every network executive, uh, two networks. Huh? Why is there no French? Uh, and the answer is because as soon as you hear a word of French, you say, why aren't Nick and Ben speaking French? And they're from Vancouver. They can't credibly do it. Um, and if they start, they can't stop. And then you're into the traditional world of a show about French Montreal that's 90% in French that's either dubbed or subtitled, and nobody in Calgary is going to watch it. But they will watch a show about city versus country. They will watch a show about blue-collar versus white-collar, and maybe I can seduce them into Montreal and give you, as you say, an alternative universe where you can experience in 1902, which you can't experience in real life, which is to walk around Hochelag and Maisonneuve and understand what the fuck people are saying. Um, if you're from Calgary, you don't have that option. Maybe the Anglos can speak Swedish. Maybe, maybe. I but mean, but can adjust to that. for the moment, getting through the first season, I mean, you know, and I'm aware, you know, I may lose 5% of my potential audience because they, they can't make that leap. But it's the other 95% that I feel are 
have an opportunity to come into French Montreal. And really, for the show to work, you shouldn't think about it that much. One of the things we do in this show is a very deliberate insert shot of a newspaper that's in French. And that's something we slowly build over the course of the season. Just a visual reminder and awareness and acknowledgement that this is French. The computers in their cars are French. The signs on their doors are French. The newspapers are reading. The books they're reading. The only time we show something written in English is if you, the audience, need to read it. And then we will break our convention and treat it like the spoken language and just put it in English so that you can understand it. Yeah, I mean, as I said, the, you know, we're all accustomed to seeing English actors playing Gandhi. Uh, it's right. If they were all speaking in British accents, we'd all go, oh, of course, they're <laughs> Quebecois. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, no, and one of the issues that was very difficult for us and I had to monitor really, really closely was, okay, so how are we going to pronounce French words then? And the way we pronounce them is the way Anglophones do when they're talking to each other, which is not like Americans. We don't say chartier, chartier. We know the French pronunciation and we say it without any French accent. We don't put any inflection mm -hmm. or f try and pretend we're French, but we say Saint Laurent. We don't say Saint Lawrence. We say Saint Denis. And I imagine you have the same dilemma with accents, accented actors. If somebody has a French accent, then what does that say about everyone who's Well, we, we'd like English. there to be room for that to come into the show, but it, it, it is often a problem. If hmm. you get an overly thick French accent, you start thinking about language, and that's the great danger of this show, is, is don't think about language. Think about people and their lives. Well, as a Montreal, I'm glad it's your problem to solve, yeah. because I don't know what I would have done. It's very tough. Um, only to us, because we're well, exactly. To well, welcome to Canada. Yeah. Um, I'd like to talk about process a little bit, um, particularly in the writing portion. Mm -hmm. And uh, writing rooms are not new to Canadians, but they came a little later in the process, and uh, it's only been in the past five to seven years, I think, that it's become the standard. If you're going to run a dramatic show, you have to have a room, you need a staff. You and Prior to that, there was a lot of farming out. There would be a central, as you said, perhaps a showrunner who's not a writer who would farm out episodes to familiar writers that you're familiar with from a Bible. Did you have any experience writing in that model of... Well, I, I mean, I've written a lot of long form, so I've written a lot of stuff by myself. Sure. Um, but I started, my first show was an American show, so I started in 1997 in a writing room that was a small writing room by American standards. It was only five people, but um, it was a writing room. Uh, 19.2 had no writing room this year. I wrote the first four scripts before we got picked up. I was running Cracked, so I couldn't start a writing room. I hired Jesse McEwen to um, write three scripts. We hired two outside-the-room people. Jesse came and worked closely with me, looking at the French season and deciding what we were committed to. Um, and then by the time we started shooting, I was free again. Um, so I ended up writing five of these scripts. I rewrote two others very heavily. Um, it was a very hard show to write when you're outside the room, um, particularly because it's so serialized. So when you get a note on episode 9, that's actually a note on episode 8 and 10, because um, 9 is not the place to fix it. So, um, yeah, it, we did not have a writing room. We're, we're planning to do at least a small but more regular writing room for season 2, of perhaps four writers. Well, I was going to ask you about the pros and cons of, of the, the writing room. Um, 
Well, there are huge advantages. Um, you know, you have resources, you have these other people's minds, you have people you can delegate and work with, you can hand scripts, you can, you know, do a pass and then hand it back, you can give them a chance to, to go at notes and then only refine on them. So it, this one was a bitch. It was a lot of work. It was, I was very much a one-man show once I got to Montreal for almost the whole shoot. I've had the pleasure of working in writing rooms, and I've always found them incredibly invigorating. People yeah. throw things out they know won't work, but it doesn't matter because in pointing out how they don't work, somebody else has something that works better, and there's, a, yeah. there's an ebb and flow, and a certain sort of, you know... When they're good, when they're collaborative, when they're, good, they're wonderful. Yeah. And I guess I've been good ones because they've always felt like idea-generating machines. Uh but I'll ask you this question as somebody who's written alone as well uh, in long form and even in the show. Uh, the question is, in staff writing, is there a point where there's just too much groupthink? Well, so absolutely. And when, that's... when the consensus uh, of, of a de the democratic kind of creative debate starts to impinge on the idiosyncrasies of a single writer expressing a voice. Well, that's the showrunner's job, is to be the vision of the show. So when I did Durham County, um, Laurie Finstad, one of Canada's great writers, had a unique voice and u unique process, and she brought me in. That was another show with no writing room. I was the only other writer ever to write on it. And I had to write in her voice and use her process, which is very painful. It was a great learning experience. But that's the job. It was her show. And my job was to help make her show, not to try and make it my show. Um, and so on 19.2, that's me who has to take responsibility for how we're going to steer this adaptation in season one um, into the English world. So when it's not a democracy, when there are disagreements, I have to pick the answer. And that's... Yeah, I was going to say creatively... Like in many things, there's such a thing as too much democracy, and, and well, exactly. the edges get filed down by yeah, the voting and I, process. And if the if the hierarchy is clear, it's I actually quite enjoy writing for other people. I enjoy being the showrunner more, but I, I, as as long as I know who's in charge and I have faith and respect in them, great. I, I argued as hard as I could. They disagree. We're doing it that way. I'm going to go do my best to do it their way. So. All right. Um, let's talk a little bit then about episodic versus serial. I know you've worked in both. Yeah. Uh, clearly, this one is extremely serial. Yeah. Um, but the lines are getting pretty blurred. You know, I think even the most episodic dramas will have you know longer character arcs now. Or, you know, I think we're moving like, towards that very much. A yeah. show like House, which is extremely formulaic within, the, within a single show, will nonetheless have a season arc where by the end there's a cliffhanger. And that's what you're tuning in for often. And that's what you're tuning in yeah. for. And, and sometimes the, the medical emergencies get forgotten, but the relationship stories continue. And similarly, the flip side of that is a show like Mad Men, which is extremely serial, or even The Sopranos, um, will, as serial as they are, they'll try to contain something thematic or perhaps uh, contain a particular character's ultimate story within a single. Mm -hmm. And um, that, so obviously there's a balancing act going on. And how, what, can you talk about the balancing act in 19.2? Well, in 19.2, you know, often the struggle is to find what's the individual 
identity of this episode. And a lot of the most successful episodes are ones that have a very strong identity. They don't have a plot that wraps up somewhere a little closer, but they have a real A journey for one of the characters, because that is the A plot, or more likely or more importantly, a journey of their relationship, because this is a show about can these two men really be partners in the true sense of that word. And a lot of what we're charting dramatically is to, you know, put them through events that bring them together and create context and reasons that drive them apart. And one of the wonderful things about this show is that they go lead private lives without each other and then they come together and they don't talk about them or they lie about them. Like in the scene we just saw, the show we just saw, one of my favorite beats is that Nick goes in and stands up for Ben to his wife and in the very next scene, Ben says, I know you didn't stop, stand up for me. And Nick lies to his face about it, says, I don't know you. Maybe you shot the guy. So we're privileged to their internal lives, but they don't just come out and admit the, the truth to each other that we know, and that's, that's very important. Um, so I'm getting a little off topic. But largely, yeah, where we, episodes we struggled more with were episodes that become just vignettes and do not have a journey. But the journey often has to be very, very subtextual to work. Otherwise, it's just a, a poor imitation of a plot. Well, the, I, obviously, there's a, there's a satisfaction factor. For At sure. the end of it, you feel like you want to have watched something rather than a portion of something or a chapter of something, even if you are... In, but in this day and age, you know, a lot of shows, and I hope 192 is one, like, you'd really enjoy binge-watching it. Tape them all, watch them, because it is one ongoing story. So the trick is to, is to make the chapter stand alone. Yeah. Let that be a lesson to you all. Mm-hmm. Buy it on DVD. Um, that, that's a good segue, actually, to another question um, that I did have. Pardon me while I flip through my, my careful writing tools here. As a, as a feature writer and somebody who's worked mainly in feature st- style storytelling, long, yeah. long form, or uh, even anthology television, yeah. I, sometimes when I'm watching even a great show, I'll get hooked and two or three seasons in a very serialized show, I'll kind of get what I would call a narrative fatigue mm-hmm which is that if this thing's going to keep going and going, basically it's, yes, it's intriguing. Yes, people are, you know, characters that I love are having fits of hysteria, but it just starts to feel like more shit happening after a while. And that, I think, comes from the sense of the lack of beginning, middle, and end because we know that most networks will try to continue this thing for as many seasons as they can get away with. Mm -hmm. So... I was wondering, in your opinion, um, whether you think that that kind of television is, is going to change. That the, the Brits, for instance, are famous for doing limited series, where The Office says, you know, decided to do We're two, done. two seasons of, what, eight each? Yeah. Or ten each, and they said, that's that. And, uh, you know, HBO as well does that. Um, so... You think that the, that the series itself will be, you know, begin to be designed to have an episode limit? 
with the beginning, middle, and end in mind at, at, its, at its impetus. I, I don't know what the business models are, which will determine that. But certainly, I mean, there's a you know, I was just in discussions with someone about something that is inherently that a limited run series. This is not open ended, but that limited run could be three years. Well, the business model right now, of course, is success means a longer run, which in turn equals more success. Traditionally, but shows like Flashpoint and Lost have said we want to wrap it up after five years. Right. And I think that, that, that if we port our viewing away from, say, commercials to, to uh, Netflix and streaming and non-commercial television like HBO, maybe there's more flexibility for saying, I want to tell a story that's three seasons long. Well, yeah, yeah, there is. I mean, this, but I'm not in that circumstance with here. You know, the job of each season is to earn another season, sort of. That's what I get hired to do. Um, But we did, within that, we had really interesting flexibility on this show. Uh, Bravo allowed us to uh, treat it like a cable show. So um, they're not all the same length. There's a fairly wide variety, three or four minutes difference between episodes. Uh, the tease, this pilot alone begins with the credits and then goes right into the show, but all the other nine episodes have a pre-credit piece. And that could be 30 seconds, that could be six minutes before we go to titles. It's up to what we earn and what's right for that episode. Um, so we've had some of that kind of freedom within the episodes to right. depart from the model. Yeah, it's been said that you know, emotional drama is becoming the domain of television, and you know the three D roller coaster ride is now the, agree, yeah. is now what you leave your home for to go to a theater and pay a babysitter. And if if that's true, and it seems to be, as our televisions get bigger, they I I know that I'm watching the emotional stuff on TV, and and it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that that there'll be a resurgence of the TV movie? I think so, and miniseries. I think I think the time is right. It was ripe for you know people who are are going to Netflix for things like House of Cards would also go to NBC for things like that. Give me a great eight-hour summer saga with a beginning, middle, and end. Sure, I as an audience, I'm ready for it. Well, I know that the television movie is a perfect example of that. That nobody's going to see those. For instance, perhaps the Tommy Douglas story. They may not go to the cinema for that. Yep. because they go to the cinema to see Gravity. Yep. But uh, it seems like the perfect time to bring that back to hopefully Canadian television. It does, and a lot of when you talk about the Brits, a lot of their limited-run shows are really that size. They're four hours, three hours, six hours of total drama um, in a whole what's called a season. I'm going to end my uh, insinuation into this process with just, just by asking you... Uh, what recent television shows from any country do you admire? Well, I'm loving True Detective, and Shameless Season 3 is breaking my heart because I loved it, and it's changed. So those are two, Sunday night on against each other, uh, and last night was Sunday. Um, those are two I'm watching very closely. Okay. So um, we're going to open that up to questions. Does anybody have something they'd like to pull out of Bruce's brain? Get it before it's gone. Well, this gentleman. Um, I have a lot of questions, but one that I'm most interested in is when you pitched to the network uh, doing a show in English, you mentioned um, the Swedish show that Kenneth Branagh and 
Wallander, yeah. Yes, that's right. In the particular, but they all speak English, and they're all supposed to be speaking Swedish. Can I just uh, reiterate the question for the podcast? Sure. Yeah. Uh, the question was, uh, given that Wallander has a main character with the Swedish accent, well, is that correct? Has no he, yes. So uh, we've cited a, a show where everyone speaks with heavy Danish accents except the lead, Kenneth Branagh. And the question to you then is, did you ever, have you considered... We, we certainly considered this? it early on, but neither network uh, was particularly open to it. Particularly for Bravo, they'd already shot the pilot. So CBC was very afraid of accents. And so we went into the pilot with, a, okay, we'll, we'll stay away from accents and we'll see if we can build that side of the show. Uh, I don't know. That's an experiment. I would have had to go through table readings to to know whether that was a mistake or not. Um, this was the safer choice, but it, but we were very interested in it, you know. And one of the things we're really trying to do this is a show made by francophones. The directors are francophone. The DLP is francophone. Yeah, and and we're, you know, our goal is to is to like Robert Lepage or Cirque du Soleil, take a great. Quebecois cultural creation and give it to the rest of the world by removing the barrier of language. So that was always an issue of where, where is that line? And that's, that's an issue for us. You know, the one shot we had to take out for Bravo was a shot with an arete sign, very, very prominent in frame. And that was jarring to them because it's such a familiar symbol. Restaurant signs were fine, but a stop sign without the word stop change them. So it's a very, we've, we've certainly found it's a very dangerous line to get too close to. Was the discussion that accents, for instance, call attention to the fact that... that, it, it, that was, it was, I think language. it was a bad experience with not being able to understand and having had to revoice some people. Yeah, girl with the dragon tattoo, they're, they're all Brits, basically. Except that, in, in sorry, in defense of the show, uh, those cities are not considered highly bilingual cities. So Germany, in Schindler's List, we don't think of people speaking other languages. That's, so that's the, no, and that's the issue in this one, is, 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 is making people say, where's the French? How come they never speak French? Um, but really it was that CBC was not terribly receptive to accents because of just clarity of understanding and thinking right in. CBC, funnily, were still asking questions about should we put a little French in all the way through. I'm not sure at the higher levels the concept ever took hold. But in a way, that's okay. Can you just disappear into the show? That's the, that's the goal. Another question. Alex in the back. Just to summarize that question, 
Uh, Alex has asked that, you know, earlier you alluded to the fact that there were stories and certain cultural characteristic of French Quebec and Montreal in particular that wouldn't translate to uh, Vancouver or Toronto or Winnipeg. And so what are those kinds? Can you give us examples of the kinds of cultural uniqueness that... that sure. There, there are sort of three particular things. I mean, one of the great things about 1902 is, is it's developed very, very closely with the Montreal police who love the show because the French version, they feel, um, changed public perception towards them and there's more sympathy. So we got incredible cooperation and, and access to ride-alongs, to really seeing the police in action. Um, and there's a funny example I'll tell you of something we had to change in the pilot because the way it happened in French was not credible to an English audience, which was in the French version, Ben does not shoot Red Hat. He is accused of shooting Red Hat. He never pulls his trigger. And the same kind of investigative weight falls on him. That was one step too far for the English audience. And no English policeman I could talk to, and I talked to a lot in Toronto and Vancouver, said no. There's no, there's no missing bullet. There's no wound in the guy. There's no, we don't go. In Quebec, it was credible. It was completely credible. The nature of the bureaucracy and the way they were exposed to it. That, yeah, you could end up on a desk for a month because some asshole said you took a shot at him. So the nature of the bureaucracy was one. The emotional um, intensity and introspection of the French male was different. And one of the big things I've had to change is the language, particularly in Ben. In French, uh, the, the actor who plays it is phenomenal. He's also 20 years older than our Ben. And he'll ride in the car and he'll talk about how he's feeling. And when you start putting that in English, that's not, no longer masculine in that culture, that Quebec culture. So that's something I had to change. But the emotional journey is the same and his introspection is the same. And to me, it's, it's, it's taken from the French and it's, it's not the journey that an English cop in an English cop culture in a big city would go through. He would be asking himself different questions. He would have different expectations of his own masculinity. And certainly to start the season, it's a very masculine show. There are two very, very important female characters that aren't met yet in the pilot. And certainly by the end of the first season, it's much more of an ensemble show. But that nature of the masculinity of the francophone I found very interesting and different. And the third one, a key one ongoing, is the uh, amount of crime that Montreal cops do not charge and prosecute. So in Montreal, when you show up at 3 a.m. to stop a bar fight and it has already gotten violence, you're looking to just make everybody go home. And in Vancouver, you're putting them in the car. And that's just the basic first assumption of what your job is. And that's a fundamental difference. And for a show like 19.2, that means it's a real advantage to be in Montreal for, to do your show. Another question? Over here? Oui, oui. Moi aussi. Oh, merci. Merci. Bruce Merci. was just complimented on taking the French language version and doing a phenomenal uh, interpretation. So uh, well, it's a great show. Oh yes. Well, well, well. No, and they're very. I know they're gorgeous, but they're also very good actors. Yeah. There's a question in the far back corner. Yeah. Um, I wanted to get off the question of uh, the content of the program. 
is is a tremendous selling tool because obviously in terms of post-production or in terms of technical and all these other areas, it doesn't matter what language the, uh, uh, you know, the people are speaking because you have a deal with English and speech whatever. It's the writer, the writing section, which is maybe the most sensitive actually happens to be in English. Um, but I don't know. I don't want to voice in your mouth. Um, but I'm curious about the differences of running a series in Toronto, like Pratt, and in Montreal, like either Dorantown or Bruce. Sorry, Bruce has uh, just been asked in, I'm very paraphrasing this question, but he's been asked to uh, comment on the differences between working in Montreal uh, and working in Toronto with writers and their particular, what they bring to the, the project. I, I know that doesn't quite do your question justice, but... One of the, the real biggest for core differences is that in Toronto there is a, a television industry that is completely separate from the feature film industry. And in Quebec there is not. They're completely integrated. And the budgets are so low in Quebec that television is made like feature films. So when we shot these, we would shoot three episodes at a time, except for the pilot. And we would prep and shoot a 24-day shoot for the three episodes, all intermixed. We go to a swimming pool. We shoot everything from three episodes for the swimming pool. That's the norm in French. And that's just a fundamentally different model. It means you have to have your scripts written earlier. You can't be writing as you go because you have to have script three before you can start shooting script one. And you have to have it finished and approved by the network. Um, so that creates a very different working model. And what the machine that makes television is in Quebec is much leaner. It's much more efficient. Um, and it has a lot less resource for the showrunner and the writer available to it. You're expected to sort of do that work at home uh, in advance. And, and you know, they would really like us for season two to block shoot two groups of five and shoot it like two feature films, which is not feasible. That's not going to integrate with the way the English network's expectations are. But we'll do three again. So that's one big difference. And then the other big difference was, you know, when I had to choose between going back to Cracked or going back to this... If I were from Vancouver, it would be very hard for me to run this show. There's, there's an, a, 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 not just having some French and being able to interact creatively with the directors who I'm making this show with, but having some sense of how to steer the culture and what the culture is and what an English odd. Not just, I mean, someone from Vancouver can tell me what a person from Vancouver is going to like, but I from Montreal can say, no, I think that's really important. I want to find a way to show it about Montreal and about our culture here and find a way to make it palatable and acceptable. Like, I want the bureaucracy to come down on Ben on episode one, so he's going to have to pull the trigger. And that's how I'm going to do that. And I'm going to have to find a way where we're with him. And we know that it was fine that he pulled the trigger, but when the police come and say, boy, that could have been cleaner, we can accept that. We can go, yeah, that's credible. And so it's 15 feet on a fire escape with a knife in his hand, and it's very complex and divisive. But in the way, it's all because I want to get to that place that they got to in French, not just do it the way we would do it if this was a Vancouver story. Um, so in that way, I don't know if that was part of your question or not. Being from Montreal is very important. If I can just follow up on the talent pool question... I know that uh, sure, yeah. in, in other shows that have uh, chosen to shoot in Montreal, at least, if not set in Montreal, some of my very talented 
English-speaking writing friends have been frustrated to find that networks have insisted on occasion on importing a lot of Torontonians to do the writing in Montreal and then go home. Or producers who want you to be out of L.A., right? And this show in particular, as as you're ramping up for future seasons, hopefully many future seasons, uh, do you feel that there is a pressure to go with you know, established Torontonian this, veterans. Th- this when show is so, so Montreal based. This show is so particular in the type of voice it needs. There's a there's a type of writing. There's a lot of cop shows on an English television, and there's a type of writing that I do sometimes. I'm probably not the best at it. That some writers I know are spectacular at. That's um, very witty, entertaining repartee. It's talk. It keeps you going. It's smart. The characters are smart, or even if they're dumb, it's smart within that. And it's it's it kills you. You can't use a word of it in this show. And we found that in in scripts, it just then it becomes another cop show, and it needs to be in a different language. So finding writers for this show is very difficult. There are a lot of great writers. I just don't feel a right for this show. And there are writers with almost no experience in writing cop shows that are perfect for this show because they don't need that baggage for this show, but they'd be perfect for Cracked. Um, So for me, the pressure to find writers on this show is I'm looking for this particular type of voice where you can write people who are inarticulate, who are not saying what they're really feeling, and yet the audience understand completely what they're really feeling, even though you sitting here beside me don't. Um, and when, you know, there are a few writers we found who had that voice, uh, Jesse McEwen and Damon Vigneault in particular, uh, who I really would like to bring back, and I don't care where they're from for that. Well said. Questions more? Heidi. But these are our directors. They didn't work on the French show. Not at all. At all. We have nothing to do with the creators of the French show directly. We don't talk to them. The message from the network, from both networks from the very beginning, was we don't care what's in the original. We just want to like it. And we like your script. But for me and Louis and Eric, we really like what's in the original. We think it's important. It's valuable. And um, so we set out to start from that love and build our show out of respect in a lot of ways. But there was never pressure from the network. They don't care what's in the French show. I think Heidi also opened by uh, asking if you could elaborate on the difference, and you have it a little bit already, about working, let's say, on Durham County with Laurie, where it's her voice. Uh, well, on this show, this was sort of closer to Durham County, the difference being that Laurie had already done season one, so there was an established voice, and when Jesse came in and it was just the two of us, like it was Laurie and I on Durham, um, you know, we, we were at a slightly earlier stage, so we were open to, to try some things, which he did beautifully. Um, so in a way, they were more similar than different. The, 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 I mean, the biggest similarity was how agonizingly hard it was. And I, it, was, it was really a surprise because when you have the story, you feel like you should have a leap. And yet by the end, doing these scripts was just as much work as if I'd started from a blank page. Absolutely just as much work. Um, 
journey of discovery and this particular you know the show what what is great about the show is it's a mix of really very openly documentary style we open this show on purpose with once nick comes back into the station with two minute and a half long plan sequence they're called single handhelds to tell the audience you're not going to see everyone's face people are going to be talking when you're walking by you're going to be looking at the back of their heads um and yet there's also an element of very heightened poetic magical realisms you're going to see people's visions you're going to see their memories you're going to see them be haunted you're going to see things that are very not real and a lot of in the writing was to find the same type of two elements so there's a real combination of almost haiku like miniaturist writing and very natural room for improv uh, and and we're really lucky because in Montreal we found a fantastic cast except for our leads um, who are interestingly are much more diverse than the French cast but they just came from here and we just opened cast the parts and those are the people who were best for the parts um, and we have some really talented improvisers who um, we were able to then embrace that when we discovered it on the pilot and start to build, okay, here's a moment to do that. So a key moment in the pilot is where they're at the uh, mountain where a third of that is just improv. We decided to go and work and then, you know, we spent an extra hour of overtime because we really thought we had something good saying, okay, let's build more. And then we used it. Um, We didn't do that under... Well, it was a it was a really interesting journey, um, and uh, Tom and Gosha at um, Bravo were really brave and supportive and willing. Like One of the things that happened first was if I took a French story and decided I didn't want to change anything, um, I'd be five to seven minutes short when I put it into English. The English audience is much more familiar with cop shows, so there's a lot of stuff that's belabored in the French to explain to the audience the way the police stuff's working, and some of it's just so familiar you didn't need it, and it's just a quicker language, and I was using a terser voice. So... You'd you'd start with, okay, I need five minutes of new stuff. And you'd end up with, I need 15 minutes of new stuff. Um, And it was very important to me that that ratio of, okay, so a third of it's got to be silent. You've got to keep finding new, silent, internal moments that don't need dialogue. Um, And... But, you know, it was case by case. It was story by story, scene by scene. The Conceptually, the network was behind it. They said, it's a cable show. We get it. It's, you know, it's a commercial product, but art is one of its ingredients. Um, and by and large, I was quite amazed at how brave they were. I mean, often my producers internally were more timid than the network. And, and the battle was, no, send them. I'm, I'm giving them the draft because I don't think that's going to be their problem with it. And sometimes I was right, sometimes I was wrong. But. Um, I would I'd like to know, uh, just uh, in terms of stepping back a little bit uh, into the, the, the industry, uh, Canadian television is seems to be breaking through an unprecedented level in terms of international interest. And um, at the same time, 
there's you know certain amount of network timidity at times. I think that we are you For know sure. we're yeah. certainly more. Certainly, at least the 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 broadcast uh, networks here are very much about procedurals and 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 cops and lawyers and hospitals. I'm not sure that you know how easy it would be to get a show like Six Feet Under or even Mash on the air mm-hmm. here if it hadn't been done before. Do you think that we'll become emboldened by this new sort of? recognition of Canadian television as internationally viable and 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 will we be the four leaders perhaps who come up with a few shows that other countries want to emulate uh, I hope so I certainly see really positive signs I mean I got into this business and really wanted to stay in Canada because I convinced myself that we're a young country um, and outside of Quebec and Newfoundland we don't take our culture seriously and we don't take ourselves seriously but we will we'll get there um, and I would love to be part of getting there. And I feel like a couple of times in my career, I've been lucky enough to be at places that were part of getting there. And I, that's where I feel like we are. But, you know, yeah, Cracked is the first non-American network show to sell on a main German network. It's sold in Russia. It's sold in France. It's sold, you know, it's unprecedented for a CBC show. Um, so, yeah, there is hope. That's great. Uh, on that note, uh, the brain drain to the states that's mm-hmm. got to be a player in all of this where you know our most talented writers producers actors uh, you know they're always there's the lure of the california carrot um well and it's the up it's not just the california carrot you know if i were la trained i'd charge I'd, i could charge more money for my services but because i've stayed in canada i'm a canadian trained showrunner so i have to start at a lower rate well, not only, do you, not only do you get offered more money if you're lucky enough to get that. But up here deal. in Canada. Oh, here. You yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, by Canadian networks. No, no. If I just go to L.A. and set up an L.A. address and don't work a day, the money I can charge up here goes up. Oh, I see. Yes. <laughs> the the, the re- reverse brain drain, yeah. the, the, the wallet drain. Um, I guess I was asking, uh, I mean... W- is there still incentive for somebody to see, as their career takes off, to see Canada as more than just a springboard should the offer come through? I mean, they, they offer not just more money on occasion. They'll offer also more power uh, to the writer. Yeah, and they make a lot more stuff. And we're unique, right? Canadians are the only people in the world who can just pass for Americans. We're just culturally prepared. I mean, there are giveaways and tells, but we watch their TV, we speak with their accent, we use their language. Nobody else does. Is there a creative incentive to stay here? But there's a personal incentive to stay here. I like it here, I want to be here, I want to make great Canadian culture. Well, we we have an incentive to keep you here. I'm continuing to do that. Are there any more questions? Heidi, pardon me. I'm I'm bicentral. My parents divorced when I was six, and one's been in Toronto, and one's been in Montreal ever since. I've mainly been here, but I've I've had a foot there. All I grew up on the 401. Yes, yes. So we have we have much less than a normal uh, network show. Costs are lower in certain ways. In Montreal, location costs, certain crew costs are lower. Um, we, d- we don't have lower actor costs because we're working in English. 
Um, but yes, we have substantially more money than Disney did in their first season, and we have a, a little bit more, significant slice more than they have in their second season. I'm not sure what their second season numbers were at the end, uh, what their budgets were, but we're, we're at about $1.4 million per episode. Pods who is the, the director of all of the Francophone uh, episodes and is yes. something of a, a local auteur. Yes. Uh, I'd just like to ask what his involvement was on your show. Uh, we approached him first. Would he like to do the English show? Uh, I started out with Pods. Um, one of my very first television scripts was one of his very first pieces of television on The Hunger in 1998. Um, and he was a lovely guy. I thought the world of him. Uh, and then he's grown enormously as a director, although he was really good then. So we started with, uh, well, let's see if Pods wants to do the pilot. Um, I didn't talk to Pods, but the story, as I understand it, was it was a conflict between him doing the first block of season two, which is five episodes. So he didn't do the English pilot. So we got Louis Choquette, because Louis Choquette was the person Pods felt was the only one that could replace him on the French show, and we took that endorsement very seriously. And Louis turned out to be a great fit, although he's very different from Pods, and Eric is very different from Louis. Um, but from the beginning... Now, the French show had some drama around it. There was unhappiness between the two leads, and even though it was a huge hit, it did not come back for its second season until a year later to get everyone back on board. So there was incentive just not to get involved mm. with the French show and just to make our own show. We do use one actor who plays the same part in the French show, Ben Antoine, who's wonderful in both shows. Um, he's a police captain? No, he's the other um, black cop. Oh, right. Uh, Tyler, who takes Ben out drinking. Um, and we uh, were very interested in Louis-Philippe Dandino, who I like very much as an actor, but then we found Dan Petronevich, who plays our JM, and just couldn't say no to him. But that was all. We've had, we've had absolutely no interaction with the French show. We've reached out a couple of times, and they haven't. Pods hasn't wanted to. I think uh, that we're going to wrap it up there, then. Um, thank you very much, Bruce, for being here to talk to thank us. Thank you for coming. And to uh, make great television for us to watch. Thank you for coming. And, thank you and for I'd, I'd just like to mention that uh, all of these uh, Talking with Writers uh, podcasts are available on the WGC uh, website. That's www.wgc.ca. And uh, there's a schwack of them with fascinating array of uh, the best writers in Canadian television. So check those out. Good night. Writers Talking TV is sponsored by the Writers Guild of Canada. If you like this podcast, please feel free to like it on our website, www.wgc.ca. I'm Doug Taylor here with the WGC counselor Anne-Marie Perota offering you this advice on writing. Don't leave your chair. You're not that thirsty. You don't have to go to the bathroom just yet. And however many people liked your kitten in a swimsuit, uh, those likes will still be there tonight. Good night.